Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. We've got a very special guest, Mr. Charlie Pierce. I think he's making our sixth appearance in the uh, running series we call Checkpoint Charlie on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Mr. Pierce is a esteemed writer from the state of Massachusetts. He got into uh, the biz writing about sports. He's a great blogger for Esquire.com. He's a Twitter king. He's got 100,000 followers. I watch him every day. We've got a lot to talk about, a lot going on in D.C., a lot in the music world, and uh, we're just going to jump right in and welcome Mr. Charlie Pierce. Charlie, how are you today? Hey, Paul. How are you doing? I'm you, really... Uh, you, are you quarantining? Oh, yeah. We, uh, we are... It's just... Uh, Quarantining with quarantinis. <laughs> yeah, you're, uh, you're, you're you're living a grumpy, free environment. Right <laughs> oh, no doubt. And but I'm uh, single-handedly keeping Tito's vodka afloat from my little corner of paradise in Northeast Minneapolis. Well, there you go. <laughs> but I got a little fire pit. I got my dog. I've got music and guitars. So I'm actually being very productive. How are you uh, getting by? How's your quarantine going? Well, you know, it's a little bit weird because I, uh, you know, this is the biggest story of my lifetime and I can't leave my house to cover it. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I mean, that's a strange, that's, that's, I'm working against muscle memory on that one. (laughs) Well, I saw this morning on Twitter uh, because uh, between... The uh, Trump taxes to the Supreme Court and the Dr. Fauci uh, congressional hearings today, you you described it as C-SPAN palooza. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was it, it, you know, the, 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 the idea that you can listen to oral arguments in the Supreme Court now, you know, on your computer or on your, you know, whatever radio you have. It's just terrific. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the re- it's one of the only silver linings of this whole mess. What and is then, of course, go ahead. Of course, you know, Fauci appeared before a Senate committee today. So, I mean, there was all kinds of stuff to do. Well, and uh, for those of you out there in the Wall of Power Radio Hour land, we are taping the show on Tuesday, May 12th. Uh, and Charlie's right in the thick of it, bouncing around the channels. Say, I just uh, I saw a little glimpse before we called you that uh, the Aqua Buddha, Rand Paul. Uh, was talking with Fauci. How did that go? Uh, he uh, he decided to to lecture Anthony Fauci that you know that Anthony Fauci wasn't the quote unquote end all for all discussions <laughs> and that uh, that outside of New England this has been a relatively mild thing. Oh, wow. I mean I don't know what the hell he's talking about. NBC News has a report from the president's own task force that points out that that you know there are massive outbreaks in small towns all over the Midwest. Including one in Kentucky, where there's a small town in Kentucky where there's a prison. Right. So, what? You know, I, you know, he, 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 you know even with even with his his quarantine beard, he's just as insufferable as he's ever. Been. Oh my God! I I swear to God, it's the uh, the rogue uh, the uh, the the brill cream has just gone to that guy's head. It really has. It seeped down. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. Uh... I'd love to find out his neighbors who who's, who kicked his ass, his neighbor's uh, birthday, because I'd love to send him a a, a bottle of uh, Jameson or a, a gift card for his uh, favorite record store. You <laughs> you can imagine why why the guy probably kicked, kicked Graham's butt. He's got to be he's insufferable as a senator, but has to be completely insufferable as a neighbor. Yeah, there's this little town called Central City in Kentucky where there's a, a big prison complex. 
And it got specifically cited in this task force report that got leaked to NBC News. There are 6,000 people who live in this place. Wow. And there's an outbreak. And yeah. there's no, you know, healthcare infrastructure in a place that small to handle something like this. So I think Rand, Rand Paul had attended his own backyard, as it were. Yeah. Well, that's what got him in trouble. And that's what got him in trouble with his neighbor. <laughs> Charlie, we're going to we're going to switch over from the dark side. Well, it's I'm, I'm not going to say it's dark, but uh, we lost. Uh, uh, it's not we, dark yet, but it's getting there. <laughs> and we're going to talk about the new Bob Dylan stuff later on the show. But I think. Uh, yeah, you and I, we always start talking about politics. We switch to music, and that's how most of the shows go. And I'm fine with that. But we lost the great Little Richard uh, this week. Yeah. I, 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 it's, it's hard for me even to explain what happened in my head the first time I heard Lucille. Yeah. It, 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 I knew it was music, but it didn't sound like music. It sounded like something else. Right. And it just blew my tiny little suburban mind. <laughs> and those, those, just that uh, that infinity that was captured in two to three minutes on vinyl, you know, like, yeah. like nothing in America ever heard. No, I mean, and, and, and I mean, I can only imagine how terrified it must have made suburban parents. Yeah. In the 1950s. Yeah. To have this freaking wild man coming out of their kids' transistor radio. Well, you look at Little Richard's influence. You know, if uh, you saw, I think I shared it the other day, uh, somebody shared Dylan's 1959 yearbook. Uh, I think it was called The Hematite uh, from Hibbing High School. And he said next to his picture, it said uh, his goal was to join Little Richard. Oh, I mean, everybody, every, every theatrical, even every rock and roll star with even uh, a pretense of theatricality. Stole from Little Richard, mm-hmm. Mick Jagger, certainly David Bowie, Lou Reed. Uh, you know the, the the guy bent the guy bent everything. He bent gender, he bent race, he bent music. Uh, you know he he, he 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 gave us a look inside the Southern Black Gospel Church. Yeah, uh, as much as Ray Charles did, as far as I'm concerned, and 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 plus he didn't sound like anybody else. For sure. I mean, I mean, look at you know, look at his effect. For example, on Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. One of the things that people don't talk about with the Beatles enough is that they had two of the great white rock and roll voices of all time. Yeah, absolutely, Lennon and, and McCartney. Both of them learned from Little Richard. Yeah. Well, and there was that, uh, uh, and the Beatles opened for Little Richard in like 1962. He. Uh, he took uh, – there's that great picture. Man, those guys look like they're 14 years old with Little Richard. But, you know, the one thing, too, uh, that I chimed in on a couple of these uh, different threads on Facebook and Twitter and others was I don't think we'd have Muhammad Ali as we know him without Little Richard. There's, I mean, there's obviously a, conne- there's obviously a connection there, too. Uh and, 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 you know, apparently he, there are photos of he and Ali together. Mm. And I think if, certainly if you look at the, you know, although Ali apparently was a much bigger Sam Cooke fan. Right. Uh, all, Sam Cooke was part of his entourage in Miami when he first thought, fought Sonny Liston. He was, and Sam Cooke is in the ring with him after the fight. <laughs> right. But, I've seen that. It's phenomenal. Uh, but I think certainly in terms of the early part of Ali's career, right around that time, 
uh, his persona certainly owed a lot to Little Richard. Yeah, the uh, uh, braggadocio and uh, oh yeah, fearlessness. Yeah, and 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 the 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 complete abandon that is is attainable by anybody who really doesn't care what other people think. Yeah, you know, you go back and uh, you look back. You know, Little Richard came into a lot of American households via the afternoon television shows, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, yeah, and Dick Cavett. You go back and you watch those appearances. They're just incredible. Well, there's a, there's a famous Dick Cavett one that's been bouncing around since Little Richard passed. Of, and, and actually, Grill Marcus refers to this very broadcast uh, in his book, Mystery Train, where he's on stage with Eric Siegel, who wrote Love Story, and John Simon, who's a notoriously snotty critic for New York Magazine. Right. And he just blows up the show. Yeah. I saw that, and I think uh, he said something about critics. He says, uh, some, and I'm badly paraphrased, he said, uh, never been in, never stay in, never got there. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Simon didn't know. He had to look at his and face if you like. Have, and if you, ha- if you haven't eaten the beans, don't criticize the girl for the beans. <laughs> well, he's, uh, what a what a phenomenal Legacy he's left, and of course, and, and the, another member of the extraordinary musical uh, history of Macon, Georgia. Yeah, I oh. mean the two, the you know the Allman Brothers, Otis Redding, and Little Richard. Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, S- same for a town that size. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and then you know, I think uh, we've got to also remember. Uh, a woman I consider the mother of rock and roll, uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, who uh, Little Richard opened for when she was like, when Little Richard was like 14 years old. And uh, she made sure he paid her, and she was one of the first to really recognize his talent. Yeah, and, and, and you know, finally this year, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, no doubt. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I... I got clued into her by a, a music a music critic friend of mine from the Boston Phoenix named Milo Miles. Oh, I know, me, I know uh, who Milo is. I, I, I'm here yeah, to Milo. Yeah, he, co- he and I worked together for five years. Uh, and he sent me a compilation that was largely, a uh, uh, cassette tape, was largely f- drawn from the Harry Smith collection, mm-hmm. but also contained Strange Things Happening Every Day. Right. And I had to go back and look it up on the internet and I found out that it was recorded in like 1946. I know, isn't that incredible? It's a rock and roll song, damn yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, and she's and she's playing out. She's playing an electric guitar. We've got Charlie yeah. Pearson for the whole show tonight on the Wall of Power Radio. We're going to listen to a little Little Richard, his uh, first big hit from 1955, the year America went from black and white to color, and we'll have Mr. Pearson for the whole show. To 
Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzner, one of my favorite guests. I believe it's our sixth episode on what we call Checkpoint Charlie's Mr. Charlie Pierce from his town. I'm sure it's a cool place somewhere in Massachusetts. What's the weather like out there in, in MA today, Charlie? It's cold. It's it's you know like, uh, you know partly cloudy and cold and windy. It's been cold and windy for like two weeks now. Wow, we find we hit a nice warm stretch. It was cold for the last couple of days. Today the sun was out when I was driving out to the radio station. It was going to hit fifty. Boy, I had a crazy thing because when you you know stranger things are happening every day. I went to gas up at the Super American, now called Speedy, I think, and there was these four guys, these four brothers, and they were on a uh, crew, they looked like they were the crews that to clean up the uh, uh, city yards or something. They looked official. And one guy got out of the front of the car and went back and cold cocked this guy who they're all in the same outfits. They're all working together. And this thing like I, I had to run into the store. I said, you might have to call the cops here. The other guy ran in the back. Now, this is the, these are the guys that are cleaning up the streets and the yards and the schools and whatever. And the guy grabs a rake and I go, oh, my God. It's like 1130 in the morning. It's the tension. I think the underlying tension that we're all going through is manifesting itself in the weirdest sort of ways. What do you see out there, Charlie? What do you feel with uh, – whether it's people – Coming in with their, you know, uh, pitchforks and torches to the to the state house in Massachusetts, wherever. What do you think the, the psychological barometer is right now out there? Oh, I think I I think it's it's I think it's extraordinarily unsettled. Uh, I don't I think you know we're not getting anything close to the you know the only the only unifying factor we have in a situation like this is the federal government. It is absent in itself. Yeah. So I think people are just are just feeling, you know, trapped in their homes and directionless. There doesn't seem to be any forward motion towards anything. Mm-hmm. What? And there's a tremendous feeling that we're not getting the truth about stuff. Yeah. Well, I swear to God. But that, you know, that being said, I don't think you should bring your AK into the state legislature chambers because you can't go to Applebee's right now. Right. As somebody said yesterday, and uh, I think it was – I think it was Twitter. This guy said, I'll stand in line with the mask and you'll tell me that it's all a hoax and that uh, that that uh, you shouldn't be afraid of going out in public without a mask. Yet you need to take an AK-47 to get a Subway sandwich. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And I, well, I swear to God, 35 35- 40% of this country is completely insane, which is one of the reasons I've said for years, Charlie, this is why the GOP does not want to put money into public education. They would rather have people read at a 10 to 12-year-old reading level and, uh, you know, keep the asses of the masses uh, in yeah, line. Well, I think I think their, their opposition to, to public education goes back from that, but I think that's certainly a byproduct of which they're not unhappy. I mean, they, you know... I think, you know, they, you know, he loves the uneducated. He said that when he was running in 2016. Yeah. Why didn't we, why didn't enough people believe him when he said that stuff when he was running? Yeah. Too many people just blew it off. He's absolutely serious. Yeah. Well, he you does know, love the uneducated. Yeah. You know well, why? Because he's a con man. Yeah. And totally, they're marks. Totally. Well, you know, the thing was, what, uh, and this is, uh, you know, the media's fault. He ran on for several years. Make America great again. Not one 
pundit or interview said, what do you think makes America great? Yeah. You know, what What do you think his answer would have been, Charlie? Oh, I have no idea. It'll be something to do, having, having something to do with, with China and immigrants from Central America. Sure. <laughs> or the stock market. Yeah. Or maybe the stock market. Yeah. Have you followed any of that? Uh, once again, folks out there in Radio Land, we're talking to Charlie Pierce on Tuesday, May 12th. Did you follow any of the Supreme Court stuff this morning? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I had, you know, while I was working, I had my, you know, my browser, I had another window open. I was listening to the, uh, to the oral arguments. Uh, How was it going? Well, the guy who was representing the House of Representatives in the first case wasn't very good. Okay. Uh, The guy who was representing the state of New York uh, in the second case, which is the, the grand jury subpoenas from, from New York state, he was really good. Okay. And the, you know, I mean, and the president, a couple of points, number one, they're all hung on how nakedly partisan uh, the the eight to nothing the the uh, unanimous decision in Jones v. Clinton was, mm-hmm. where they made Clinton you know subject to Paula Jones's lawsuit. Uh, and every minute the thing went on, it looked more illegitimately partisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, because they're trying to make the excuse that they, these things shouldn't proceed. Because they would be too much of a distraction to the president and too much of a burden for him to carry out his constitutional duties. Well, first of all, and this argument was not made because lawyers want to have lawyers don't want to get disbarred. He doesn't carry out his constitutional duties anyway. So what the hell difference does it make? <laughs> right. Second of all, you know. Second of all, the, he's not being subpoenaed. Deutsche <sighs> Bank is being subpoenaed. Right. His accountants are being subpoenaed. So and so the the Repub- the, the defenders of the White House on the Supreme Court, were sort of stuck trying too much of a burden on him, and he couldn't, you know, concentrate on his golf game or Fox and Friends or something. Right. Well, you have So to... I don't know. I mean, there, there, was, there was some intriguing cross... Neil Gorsuch, for some reason, seemed very open to the argument that Trump should have to answer the subpoenas. Huh. Well, uh, I like where that's going. Yeah, and Robert seemed more inclined... And I suspect this was because the guy was making a more coherent argument. Robert seemed more friendly towards the New York lawyer than the House of Representatives lawyer. Hmm. And I don't know why that is. I can't figure out why that is. How is our, but, uh, how is our superhero RBG doing? What did she lay? Uh, okay. I mean, she was okay. She was very, very much uh, succinct and to the point. Sotomayor and Kagan carried the ball uh, for uh, – What's you know you know usually called the liberal side of the court, right? Especially Kagan. Kagan had a very very good day. Good. Well, I'm happy to hear. That. Is that going to go on all day and tomorrow too, or how long? Does... No, it'll be it's probably done by now. Okay. Uh, well, I say right now, but you know we're recording this on. It's about one thirty on Tuesday, and it's done by now. Okay. I mean, one thing I learned, you know, because I started going to the Supreme Court oral arguments a couple of years ago, they don't take a long time. I mean, they they you only get a certain amount of time to argue your case, and then each justice gets a certain amount of time for questions, and then they're out the door. Oh. I mean, it's, it's very brisk. It's usually done by lunchtime. I had a friend of mine named Scott Swanson, who I grew up with. Uh, he's now the, one of the heads of uh, the law department at St. Thomas uh, University here in the Twin Cities, and he argued a case before the Supreme Court wearing his Jerry Garcia tie. 
Oh, the most excellent. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Charlie Pierce on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. We'll be back with two more sets. Stick around. Well, it's Saturday night and I just got paid. My money don't try to save it. My heart said go, go. Have a time because Saturday night and I feel fine. Gonna rock it up. I'm gonna rip it up. I'm gonna shake it up. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. We've got Checkpoint Charlie, or I believe our sixth episode with Mr. Charlie Pierce, a great writer and liberal blogger. You've seen him on MSNBC and CNN. Among other things, he's a, a reoccurring guest on the Stephanie Miller Show, which we carry here at AM 950. And uh, I call him my psychological morphine drip in my connection to the world of politics. And, Charlie, lately I need a double dose. (laughs) (laughs) Careful. What do you think now, Michael Flynn? Let's jump into this one a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't have anything more to say than what everybody else has said, which is that it's an inexcusable interference and, you know, a a completely corrupted Department of Justice. I mean, I I have never heard, and I literally have never heard of, a case being dropped after the guy has pled guilty. Yeah, right. <laughs> Come on. That's just nuts. And I have, I mean, I have a feeling that the judge is not happy with it either. Well, he's the last line. Of, he's the last line of defense. And then I saw Rand Paul chime in on Twitter after you had 2000, uh, legal experts and analysts, uh, many of whom with work, worked with the justice department, uh, signed the letter saying how Bill Barr's, um, rationale was so out of line with what we know as the American system of justice. And then Rand Paul chimes in and says, well, now at least we know who the deep state is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you remember that Saturday Night Live thing with the needles in the eyes? <laughs> that, that's how I feel when I read all that stuff. So yeah, ch- I don't, no, I don't. I don't remember needles in the eyes at all. That's that, uh, well, it was an early, um, who was the guy? He was a National Lampoon guy. Oh, yeah? Writing for uh, Saturday Night Live, yeah. Oh, he, Michael O'Donoghue. Yes, Michael O'Donoghue. He used to do a thing with the, the knitting needles in his eyes when things just got too absurd. Yeah. Hey, let's uh, talk about, we have a lot of things in common, Charlie, but we both have uh, uh, deep respect uh, for the bard of the Iron Range, Mr. Bob Dylan. How much are you digging these new tunes he's dropping? I, I mean, I, the, the first one, the really long one, I, I, I knocked me out. The second one was okay. Multitudes was okay. This latest one is straight out of the basement tapes. Yeah. You know, that kind of circuit riding preacher on a hazy frontier. <laughs> kind of, I mean, I, I think, I think what people, a lot of people underestimate is how deeply Bob got into the Bible. Oh, yeah. Bob can be biblical without being capital B biblical. Yeah. He really knows the, 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 the rhythms and the, the kind of, you know, 
the syntax and the and the vocabulary of scripture. I was even though he's not being specifically religious, although he was for that those right. couple of albums. Right. It's... Which, by the way, I uh, just finished listening all the way through to the Bootleg Street uh, collection from the uh, the Christian period. Yeah. Outside of the band, the band that he, that he put together for the Christian period, the touring band, phenomenal. That's the best ensemble he ever had. Phenomenal. Yeah, and there's a lot of that stuff uh, on YouTube with, you know, he had the the four singers and, uh, you know, I think Tim Drummond on bass and uh, Russ Kunkel on drums. And, yeah. man, just everybody in that band uh, was phenomenal. You know, when you – and you and I have mentioned this before, but it's, it's always worth mentioning. There's not going to be anybody that picks up a guitar today, starts writing songs, maybe gets a recording contract – that will ever catch up to that guy. You'd have to play for 600 years and gigging and recording to get a glimpse of what he, what, what Dylan's done in his 59 year career. And not, I mean, I mean, and, 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 and not just that. I mean, one of the reasons you'll never catch up with them is you don't know which one to catch up with. <laughs> exactly. You know, are you going to catch up with, with the, the old man of the mountains? Or are you going to catch up with, you know the the folky hero. Are you going to catch up with the electric guy in the in the checkerboard suit? Yeah. Who's Dylan are you going to catch up with? Right. Because well, nobody's ever going to catch up with all of them. Yeah. Well, I was. Uh, I mean, that's why I thought that's why I thought I'm not there was a great a great idea mm-hmm. for a movie. I'm not sure the execution was what it should have been because a couple of them were a little bit weird. But that's the way it is. Right. Who was Who's the actress that nailed that sixty six Dylan? Yeah. She nailed it. Yeah, that was phenomenal. That was absolutely astonishing to me. You know, I was just kind of, I saw on, uh, you had mentioned the other night on your Twitter feed that you were getting into No Direction Home Again, the uh, Scorsese documentary. And so I jumped back into that. And, you know, you go to Dylan, right? He's up in Hibbing. He's he's playing with the Golden Chords. comes out, you know, in the uh, in, in his high school years, comes out in Minneapolis, hangs out in Dinkytown, gets turned on to folk music via a couple of friends of mine, Dave Whitaker and Dave Morton, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago. And then they literally, Whitaker one night gives them, says, oh, by the way, you dig this. It's it's uh, Bound for Glory by Woody Guthrie. And right. wakes up in the morning and Dylan's finishing it, right? Completely... Mm-hmm set Dylan on his path to become Bob Dylan. And then um, Dave Whitaker and Dave Morton actually drove Dylan to the edge of Minneapolis. Now, you got to dig, man. This is January. This is wintertime. So he takes up. So Dylan says in in, uh, No Direction Home, he goes, yeah, I had 10 bucks in a guitar case. And, you know, everybody was hitchhiking back then. Um, But you think about that. So he gets to New York. Gets a gig that night in the Cafe Wa playing harmonica with Fred Neal. Five years later, he's the king of rock and roll. So he goes from this Charlie Chaplin, Woody Guthrie character. Five years later, he's got the Ray-Bans, the hair, the Beatles boots, and he's playing a Stratocaster in five years. Yeah, and then and then disappears for two years and comes back as, you know, a, comes back as a... a Country you know, singer, the of guy sorts. who invented the guy who invented Americana, <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, I, with John Wesley Harding and 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 Nashville Skyline. Charlie, if you had one record you could take to the island, one Dylan record, you can have nine others. 
Some of them could be other Dylan records. What's the one? What's your favorite? Oh, Blood on the Tracks. Yeah. By far. By, by far, yeah. I mean, I, the, the songwriting on that is so damn mature. It hit it hit me right at the right point in my life when I needed something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, that, that will never change. That I, absolutely will never change. He will, I don't care how good this new album is. He will never dislodge Blood on the Tracks. You know, and it's funny because when I heard that record for the first time I came out in 75. Well, you must have known all those guys, right? Yeah, yeah, I actually. I, mean, I, know, you, I know you knew Bob Odenkirk. Yeah, I have, um, uh, Kevin Odegaard. I'm sorry, yeah. No, that's okay, but I met Odenkirk, too. We had a couple of drinks talking about the late, great David Carr because you may, maybe or maybe you don't know, uh, Odenkirk bought the rights to David Carr's book, Night of the Gun. Right, yeah. So, so Odenkirk. Uh, came to town a couple of years ago, wanted to meet some of Carr's old running buddies. So we had uh, uh, we had drinks together in the last booth of the CC Club, where the song "The Replacement Student Here Comes a Regular" comes from. In the back booth, where Tom Arnold, Dave Carr, and I used to share different things under the cushion of that <laughs> of that particular booth. We don't get have to get any further. But uh, on May 23rd, Charlie, I'm going to uh, I have four episodes on my TV show, Wall of Power TV, where I got uh, together all six of the guys that played on Blood on the Tracks, Chris Weber by Skype from, uh, from California, and uh, uh, Bill Berg, the drummer, on the phone from North Carolina, but I had Kevin Odegaard, Billy Peterson, Greg Inhofer, and uh, Peter Ostrushko with John Bream, the rock critic for the Star Tribune, talk about it because they finally, on when they had the 10 disc set come out a year and a half ago, more blood, more tracks, they yeah. finally got their credits because they weren't credited on the first uh, go-around because that uh, those album covers were already printed by the time they re-recorded those songs. Oh, that's right. That, that's right. Eric Weisberg and Deliverance get get credited. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I always. That's the. I have the original. I have the original vinyl. I have the one with the Pete Hamill uh, liner notes and stuff. Oh, cool. That's my vinyl copy of, of Blood on Tracks, which I bought. Uh, I, I bought uh, when I was a, I, I was a beginning of my senior year in college. Wow. Uh, and I had, you know, the typical college experience. I had the busted. Uh, you know, college romance thing. I had everything, everything going bad for me. And my friend Don Walker, who used to cover, work for the God Rest His Soul, passed away a few years ago. Worked for the Milwaukee Journal, uh, but he was the entertainment editor for uh, uh, the student paper where I was the editorial page editor. And he came down to the offices one day, and he was singing "Chemicals Up in Blue." Wow! And I said to him, "I said, wow!" I said, "What's that?" And he said, "I said, he said that's the new Dylan album." I got up from my desk. I went downtown to Radio Doctors, my very favorite record store in all of the world. Gone now. In downtown Milwaukee. And I bought, like, the third copy of Blood on the Tracks that they sold. Cool. Which is different from Quadrophenia. When Quadrophenia came out, I heard Love Rain Army on the radio, and I went down to Radio Doctors, and I made a friend of mine who worked there open the box to give me a copy. <laughs> I wasn't even on his shelves yet. Well, you love your music, and that's uh, one of the reasons why I dig you, Charlie Pierce. You know, when I got to, when I listened to Blood on the Tracks, I had a totally opposite experience. I did not dig it at all. I was uh, I was into that Wild Mercury sound, Highway 61, yeah. and, and Blonde on Blonde. I swear to God, Charlie, I stopped listening to Bob Dylan for 10 years. 
Um, wow, really? Yeah, and then years... After Blood on the, after Blood on the Track? I listened to it. I didn't dig it at all. The Folly of Youth, right? Um, yeah, yes, yeah. And in any way, you know, and I listened to so much, Dylan, I could use a little palate cleansing at that point artistically. Anyway, then in 2000, uh, at Dylan's 60th birthday, I put together the Million Dollar Bash, reunited all the guys from Blood on the Tracks yeah. that hadn't played together since that session. We had 40 bands on two stages between First Avenue and 7th Street Entry. And... Um, 1,200 people, sold out show. If you dressed as a Dylan lyric or song, you got in for free. And uh, it was unbelievable when those boys got back together and played, and they had done some rehearsals. When they yeah. went into Tangled Up in Blue, you felt like you were on a spaceship to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that's funny about the, about the free admission, because actually, I actually went to a uh, Halloween party mm -hmm. uh, in college. That was a, a Dylan lyric themed Halloween party, and I went as uh, Einstein disguised as Robin Hood. <laughs> I had a, I had a, I had, a, I, had a, I had a Princeton sweatshirt and uh, one of those green caps. <laughs> Touche, Charlie Pierce. We're going to listen to a little music here and be back with Charlie for one more set on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Early one morning the sun was shining I was laying in bed Wondering if she'd change it all If her hair was still red Her folks, they said our lives together Sure was gonna be rough They never did like mama's homemade dress Papa's banquet wasn't big enough And I was standing on the side of the road Rain falling on my shoes Heading out for the east coast Lord knows I paid some dues Getting through Tangled up in blue She was married when we first met Soon to be divorced I helped her out of a jam I guess But I used a little too much Welcome back to the fourth set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. My guest, our sixth installment of Checkpoint Charlie, Mr. Charlie Pierce, talking to us from Massachusetts somewhere. Uh, follow him at, uh, what is it, what's your Twitter handle, Charlie? At uh, Charles P. Pierce. Yeah. And, capital uh, C, capital P, capital P. I had no idea I would enjoy Twitter and waste so much of my life on it as I, <laughs> as I do now. But you're one of the uh -huh. reasons uh, – you're one of the reasons why – I love Twitter with, uh, you know, then you get Amy Siskind and now I'm a big Janet Maslin fan and there's a lot of fun people to follow on that. And, uh, yeah, Janet, Janet, Janet's another product of the Boston Alternative Press. Oh, is she? Way, yeah, she, a little bit before me, but yeah. Well, I, oh yeah, she was a real paper. I think she wrote for the real paper. I'm I, not sure. I used to love, uh, her, her, uh, film reviews in the New York Times. Yeah. Hey, yeah. speaking of, uh, Old buddies of yours, I just told the story today when I was describing who I was going to be interviewing today to a friend of mine. About 10 years ago, I sold a guitar 
to a fellow I had never met named Gary Popovich on oh, Facebook. Oh, my old roommate, yeah. And I got $500 from Gary, and he still, it's a beautiful guitar. It was worth every dollar. And one thing led to another, and he turned me on to this guy named Charles Pierce. And I said, geez, <laughs> I think I know him. I think I've seen him on MSNBC and CNN. And it turns out you two were college roommates at Marquette. Now, I, we were, yeah, for a year, and he's, he's yeah, we knew each other. We we went to uh, we met at a at a convention of student council officers when we were in high school. Oh, really? Gary went to high school. Yeah, Gary went to high school in the western part of the state, out in Westfield, and of course, I went in Worcester, in the central part of the state. Uh, and we just we just immediately connected at this very strange convention, and you know, we kept in touch. And he started at UMass, okay, and then he decided he wanted to transfer to to Marquette. So there we are. Well, and uh, he's regaled me with stories about how he used to drive him nuts playing the Who on 11. But there's a story <laughs> that he's hinted at that we've never quite talked to, and that was about the hooker who lived next door oh, to you guys. Yeah. Uh, the, there was a, a, young, a young lady. I can't wait to friend. hear the story. Go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. They, I mean, there was a young lady, who, well, not a young lady, but a veteran, I would have to say, <laughs> uh, plying her trade in the apartment next door. And one day, Pop and I were, I don't know, we were getting ready to go out, I guess, on Saturday afternoon or something. I remember it being a weekend anyway. And all of a sudden, there was, like, smoke coming out from under the door. And we said, you know, holy, you know, which we, and so I think I think it was Gary went and opened the door. And her, her previous client had passed out at the kitchen table. <laughs> and the kitchen was on fire. <laughs> And she was somewhere, and her kid was also in the apartment. So Gary and I, you know, managed to wake this idiot up at the kitchen table and get him outside and got her and the baby outside, and then we called the fire department. <laughs> what, uh, so what happened to the, what happened to the house? Did it burn to the ground? No, no, no. It was just, it was a grease fire mostly. Okay. But it was, but it could have been a lot worse. You guys I mean, did. We had, if we had left. You know, a half an hour earlier, the whole place probably would have gone. So you got you guys, you two young gentlemen, single as you were. You 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 didn't get any uh, credit, did you, on her account? I I, I was willing to believe me. I was willing to do this for free. <laughs> I wasn't looking for any credit on that. <laughs> you know, a friend of mine named Jerry Disrude, who I. Uh, he moved out to New York in the early seventies and became a cab driver. And I lived with him for a couple of years in Rigo Park in the mid nineties. Now he's been a dog groomer for years, but he started out driving cab at night. And uh, one of his claims to fame is he gave Ringo a star ride. But he used to have oh, a handful of regular clients, uh, and a couple were ladies of the night. And he had uh, one lady, so this is about 1973, and he's uh, driving her either to an appointment or back from an appointment. And uh, so Jerry says, well, you know, ma'am, what about, you know, what about Jerry? This is, you know, this is, uh, we, we grew up in the summer love generation. And uh, anything for your, your cabbie, Jerry, tonight? And she goes, Jerry, she goes, the love is free, but you have to pay for the sex. <laughs> <laughs> God bless them both. So. I didn't know you lived in New York. Oh, yeah. I lived in Rego Park. Um from uh, I went out there to meet Nora Guthrie, and um, 
which I did. So I moved out in the, I think it was the uh, January of 1995, and I was there for about a year and a half. Got to meet Nora, watched her put the uh, Woody Guthrie archives together when she was uh, officing at Woody Guthrie Publications at 250 West 57th with the great Harold Leventhal. Uh, it, was sure. a great, it was a great office. Nora had an office, uh, Harold Leventhal with the couch that Woody used to sleep on, and Fred Hellerman uh, from the Weavers. And uh, Harold's wife was the uh, – she uh, she was the uh, secretary. She answered the door. So, yeah, it was a mar- marvelous, marvelous time in my life. And uh, Regal Park and I lived uh, – we lived about a block and a half from the Trilon Theater. Right next door to that was uh, Joey Ramones. The Ramones' mother had an art gallery. And that's the, uh, where the Ramones used to rehearse. And if you looked at that, their first record – that's the 63rd Street stop. That was my stop to get into the city every day. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. I had no idea you were that much of a traveling troubadour. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. And, and I'm so glad I did because, um, you know, I played out there at the 60th anniversary of Gertie's Folk City on January 24th at the Iridium, not to drop any names, but I was there with Willie Nile and Carolyn Hester and more. And now, and this... It, We've only got about 45 seconds left, and, and uh, it's it's another checkpoint, Charlie, for another time about how the new normal is going to be, talking sports, yeah. music, and everything else. So, Charlie, yeah, I, I just, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I just, I, you know, I, I just read something. I don't know if it was Jason Isbell or somebody else talking about what's live music going to be like. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I you know, I don't have to tell you, you know, probably don't have to tell you, What's the point in playing music if you can't play live? Yeah. I mean, not everybody's Steely Dan. <laughs> thank <Yeah>. God. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Charlie Pierce. This has hey, been well, great. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, it's been remind great. Me about the, and, and remind me about your, you, you know, your Blowing the Tracks uh, live stream. Yeah, that's going to be a tribute Bob's to Bob. birthday. Yeah, Bob's 79th birthday. We'll be streaming it live on my Facebook, maybe even on AM 950 and MCN 6, the TV station. Charlie, you be good. Get back to C-SPAN and uh, always, uh, always enjoy speaking with you. Take care, man. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This show is produced by Paul Mensa, engineered by Pat Lilia at AM 950 Studios in Eden Prairie, which is neither Eden nor Prairie. I've got a big live show coming up, a live stream. We're celebrating Bob Dylan's 79th birthday from the shores of the Mississippi with my harp player, Sonny Earl, and Billy Peterson, who played bass on Blood on the Tracks. We're going to be streaming on mcn6.org and off my Facebook page. Keep posted to paulmetza.com for all that info. Hope everybody's well, and like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.